This is not just any podcast. This is the Decolonizing Contraception Collective Podcast. The Sex Agenda. (laughs) Oh my god! Okay, that's it. That's the intro. The Sex Agenda podcast may contain references to sexual violence, sexual assault or sexual oppression. Our listeners' well-being is our priority. Please feel free to tune out if you need to. Hi and welcome to episode six of The Sex Agenda. So queerness in the Caribbean community is the theme of this episode and it has been absolutely ages well it hasn't been ages it's been two weeks (laughs) Uh, and you know that laugh that laugh that I have missed um because I've listened to it in between but um that is the amazing hey babes how's it going uh yeah yeah really good um yeah it's been an exciting um two weeks so we took a little bit of a break because Ed M has been working on our contraception is about everyone campaign um which we're really excited about and we wanted to make sure that we could give the online material our full attention yes and do some online events to promote that so yeah do you want to speak about your your yeah so I'll uh remember I talked about it in like the first episode I was like hold on I'm gonna tell you something in like a couple of weeks time so here we are so yeah our contraception is about everyone campaign is out it's on Instagram it's on Twitter once the campaign ends like sort of next week we're gonna put all the materials on the website so people can continue to have a look at it but yeah we just go through all the different contraception methods we have some wonderful illustrations by Nadia Akinbule um, of people telling us about their contraception stories and we've also done an IG live so we had Mimi and Annabelle on the IG live last week Monday and we will have myself and Alex who works in the HIV and sexual health sector in Ghana who I've worked with quite closely a couple of years ago so we're going to be talking about contraception in like heteronormative Christian context and yeah and I'm really excited I'm really looking forward to it and that's going to be on World Contraception Day on Saturday. So this is something that we have wanted to do for um, a really long time essentially and it's really just decolonizing contraception was founded to discuss the history of sexual reproductive health but also try to have different conversations about sexual reproductive health and a lot of that had been born out of the history of like contraception coercion myths around contraception so this this campaign was a opportunity to destigmatize it as well as talk about how contraception is often centered around cis women and how often the contraceptive like burden and I say burden because sometimes this hormonal side effects that kind of thing often fall on that community and how as a society we need to think about how we can educate the whole of society about contraception as well as push better research innovation and also highlight how queer communities often need contraception too um so yeah this this campaign has really been a lovely experience and exciting yeah really exciting (laughs) and then we had some more exciting news last week which was so we're really sad that we we missed you guys but we had some amazing news did we yes so we won the grassroots organization of the year at the sexual health awards (laughs) (laughs) i don't think that was loud enough you need to do it again Oh, I'm sorry. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to turn the volume up. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, I feel like I'm in a dancehall club. It's, it's the closest <laughs> I'm going to get to a dancehall club, to be honest. Uh, the, the Rona is like ruining 2020. Oh, um, Rona says 2020 no, lacquer. No, no, no carnival, no carna- carnival after parties. It's just really, yeah head to toe disgrace is 2020 yeah but we give thanks for life (laughs) but yes we won this award and um really really excited about that obviously the awards aren't the work but I think a lot of people know that we've been grafting and we uh, we're not funded and we run on donations and collaborations with other organizations and I think it's just a testimony to how 
amazing the collective um and we've all individually tried to work to advocate and yeah just change the landscape a little bit more and make sure that other organizations are integrating these conversations into their work so yeah really appreciate the recognition because people voted for us and yeah that was that made us feel a lot more positive because it, yeah. has, been, it has been really hard. I'm not, I, I can't lie. It's been, it has been difficult. And at times it's been incredibly, incredibly draining. So it's nice to feel sometimes like you are being heard and your, your work is, yeah. is getting somewhere. So you can do the little cry last week Wednesday. I was like, oh, we're getting <laughs> a bit emotional here. Excuse me, outing me. You also did a little cry. No, I said I did a little oh, cry. Okay, no, because really? when you first told me before it got announced, you were like, I'm crying. I'm like, oh, that's so cute. And then when it actually got announced on the Wednesday, I was literally out for a walk and I started crying. I was like, oh, what is this water coming down my face? Yeah, what is going on over release, here? The stress release, like, <laughs> <laughs> the stress release cry. Um, yeah, but I just want to say, like, obviously we were nominated with some really, really incredible people who do really incredible work. So commiserations to the other nominees and congratulations to the other winners as well um and also on that note we will have um her on at some point but big shout out to ella uh black fizine who does amazing work and was also nominated and has been like we love you ella yeah and has been really <laughs> great and was helping us like plan some of our sex fest and doing work around that so yeah um there were great yeah. people nominated to go and look at their work so since we spoke on our last episode boy oh boy has there just been like masses of stuff that has gone down and happened mm-hmm. um one thing that I did want to say is there was really sad news. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, aka um, RBG, two millennials <laughs> passed away. So for people that don't know, that was the Supreme Court Justice Judge in the US who you know, was one of two women on the Supreme Court and has been instrumental to the fight for reproductive justice in the US. And I can't go into all her accolades, um, but was a huge champion of social mobility in the US. And, you know, like, like everybody that has huge responsibility, by all means, was not a perfect individual and did not have a perfect voting record. But for reproductive rights, did a huge, a huge amount of good And in her absence, I think a lot of our counterparts in the US are really worried about the next nominee who's appointed by the president and what that will mean for for a long time, because the Supreme Justice stays on on the bench um, pretty much for their lifetime unless they step down. democracy what (laughs) yeah and uh, what that and what that might mean in terms of um not just reproductive rights and access to abortion care but even wider for like global policies because as we know the u.s has a huge huge effect um and you can go back to listen to our first episode on reproductive justice on on the landscape of reproductive health and um abortion access globally so yeah it's probably gonna have quite huge repercussions and we all just have to watch look and and see what's going on and Mm -hmm. in in her absence we've got to continue the work you know (laughs) um yeah so I just wanted I wanted to say say that and just make sure people are aware of what's going on so back to um the UK setting and we've had a few important kind of reports come out so in September we get the sexual health statistics statistics released every year and it just basically tells us the data that's coming out of our sexual health clinics and what what's happening obviously this won't capture like the covid data that will be right that will be next year um however i think it's it showed some important things really yeah like Annabelle said so this is the data for 2019 so basically what happened last year between 2018 and 2019 and the report just basically shows that there's been an increase in gonorrhea um, reported particularly in gay bisexual and other men who have sex with men 26% increase we're seeing there also um, 26% increase for heterosexual women and 17% increase for heterosexual men and then when we look at the statistics probably the one that we are probably most concerned with and would work with the mice which I mean we were saying before we came on you were like are you sure this is the stat for last year because it looks like the one thing you actually love you're like it's just the same thing no but seriously this is like why partly we were motivated to just be like look we're going to do this now and have these conversations on the sex agenda it's because like every year even since the 60s 
the sexual health statistics for black and other minoritized groups are bad you know it's mm-hmm. like they, and they're not just bad like it just seems to get progressively worse every year yeah and then like there yeah. doesn't seem to be like any new or different strategy about how they're gonna target them it just seems to be like oh they're bad that's what we expected let's release like the next report mm-hmm. so I think you know we do really need to and I think in wake of everything that's happened really around like Black Lives Matter and people having yeah. more conversations around structural inequalities, it is really important that we understand because pe- people often say things like, oh, they're bad because people are having loads of like high risk sex and all of this kind of thing. But fundamentally, if you have a community that has historically always had a higher proportion of sexually transmitted infections, mainly due to structural issues, health inequality, less education, Mm -hmm. all of those things. And most of this community sleep within that community. Then you continue to have higher proportion of sexually transmitted infections. Like they're not going to go down. So we really need to have uh, a bit more of a think about what we're going to do in terms of talking about the structural determinants of health, how we address address those and bring statistics down. Because obviously just talking about STIs all the time is not helpful because it's not actually seemingly the sexual behaviours, it's everything around that. Well, that's how I feel anyway. I don't know. Edem, you might have. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I... <laughs> it's not funny, so I don't know why we're laughing, but um, it's if just you don't nervous laugh, laughter. You, don't laugh, you cry, isn't it? It's nervous laughter. It's frustration laughter. Isn't yeah. It, I think, to be yeah, honest. no, you're it's absolutely like, right. You And then also, I just like hate the phrasing of things as well, always. Um, well, we're always going to have problems with that. But I think what is actually quite helpful as well is that it's a read I think I think compared to anywhere else in the world and like somebody should email me and tell me if I'm wrong I will happily own to it I think this is actually quite the frustration is it's quite comprehensive data right like it's it's a good piece of data to have I think the frustration comes with like what gets done with it because like we know it's like everybody knows but actually what is happening there's not a you know concerted effort really like rigorous effort funding I mean given that we've seen like lots of charities go under we've give we've seen like funding you know sexual clinics all of that community engagement work stuff cut massively it's like well you can't do all of those things and expect a group that already like you said face structural inequalities to remarkably change like I don't I don't know what it is that people expecting but you know this coupled with the news that you know we had in the last episode about public health England it really worries me about what the future is gonna hold in terms of really addressing this and part of me feels like really super grateful that we exist because we're gonna keep putting it on the agenda and making sure that we get funding and we get programs and we get targeted effort in addressing this and we don't get programs in which communities are being blamed almost a bit like COVID you know you're being blamed for your own death that you know we really throw everything we have at the people in charge to make sure that we're addressing this in the community and people in the community are leading are leading on on this piece of work yeah yeah. absolutely and I think one of the things that frustrates me about these statistics is that we have you know it's quite clear for some things like gonorrhea the rate of gonorrhea in some areas of the country in the black caribbean community specifically is almost like 10 to 1 compared Mm -hmm. to their white counterparts Mm -hmm. so why do we not have tailored services right. for specific communities when the disproportion of those affected is so high? Like mm-hmm. we have youth services or services for queer communities because we know that the needs are different. I don't right. know why we continue to have such disparate data, but we don't tailor our services accordingly. It doesn't make sense to me to be like, we're going to make this wide accessible service for everybody to capture everyone when mm. not everybody is sharing the burden of STIs. So there are a few things that jumped out in the data and the data suffers from like the usual stuff, right? Like where mm-hmm. we're in like all BME groups together and it's kind of a di- bit difficult to tell because they have like people that are black Caribbean, black African, then all white people, one group. And so it's a bit difficult to tell, you know, where the disease is to the degree that we need to, but that being said, it does point out some specific things. As I said, the proportion of STIs is particularly high 
mm-hmm. among Black Caribbean people and it's right. increasing. And then actually um, the largest proportional increase in all new STI diagnoses is actually highest within the Asian community. Mm-hmm. So typically this is a demographic that it was typically said the need was less right that the sti risk was less but then actually i think we've also increased testing and it also shows that there's an increase there so Mm -hmm. we need to start thinking about tailoring services in parts of the country where we have um, uh, more um, people being affected by stis and you know do things yeah, that makes sense because yes. for me, it doesn't make sense to have five appointments in the morning or openly accessible when we know that some of the community are going to probably have more need for them than than others. Right. Mm-hmm. We should have services that are accessible to people that need them, but yeah. also look at our data and act accordingly and accordingly I think that people get really scared (laughs) of making services that target um different racial groups Hmm. I'm entirely honest I feel like they might they might feel like they're going to get backlash or then they're worried that people won't won't go I don't know what you think about this but at the end of the day we know because of racism that there's structural inequalities that exist right people not want to or not or not able to access mm-hmm. mainstream services because of the way they might feel about that service their experiences in the service so you have to design an appropriate service why right and get buy-in from the community which is what we do like the community has to be involved from the beginning because they'll be able to tell you where the fault lines are right what are the key issues what you could what you can do to remedy them as for the backlash i don't think any public health body should be concerned with public back backlash like what we're, we're doing a job here in it so like you know think what you want to think but this is what is necessary to address what is quite clearly a public health issue when we are part of the public um like I agree but I also disagree like I do think like you have to um be sensitive sometimes and have a consideration about how things might be perceived because typically a lot of things have gone wrong and interventions have gone wrong when people have not consulted people appropriately so I do think that's important but um, at the end of the day, I think the fun- uh, the fundamental issue is that we've repeated the same strategies almost again and again and again for, <laughs> for several not decades. Working. And actually the statistics aren't, aren't improving. So are we going to try something new? And I also think it's really important that these rising, these rising STI levels, and we're going to get on to the, the, the poorer access to contraception, um, which is also an issue. Mm-hmm. are happening amidst a backdrop of the sector just being underfunded so there's right. millions of pounds that have just been uh, have defunded sexual health services over the last eight years and mm-hmm. it, it, it speaks to the data to be honest like everything seems to just be getting worse rather than rather than better so um also um a couple of weeks ago the all-party parliamentary group on sexual reproductive health in the uk um released their report on the inquiry into access to contraception which we did contribute to in the form of a survey and evidence and i had a chat about some of the things coming through our workshops and um some of the events that we've done about accessing contraception and the report actually i think people should go and read it we'll put it in our reference links that are on our website but it was really i think comprehensive actually of the issues that people say that they're facing and the fact that the, si- the, the the system of accessing contraception is just so fragmented. So mm-hmm. it's it's just such a nightmare for people that they can't get an appointment with their GP. The queue or appointments at the sexual health clinic are too long. When people mm-hmm. have a, a child and want to have contraception before they go home, loads of hospitals won't fund postnatal contraception. So then they're left waiting in that interim period, which might end up being three months they may conceive again um unplanned they didn't have access to contraception it was not easy to come by and it's just like why are we making this process so disjointed and so difficult for people and obviously inevitably this process is going to be like more hard to navigate for the worst off right like right who has time to be going 
from clinic to clinic or calling different clinics to to get contraception, especially have if you have a demanding job or work difficult hours, it should just fit seamlessly into people's into people's life. To be quite honest, and it hasn't been it hasn't been doing that, and these problems were just like amplified during the whole lockdown period which fingers crossed we're not going into again (laughs) but that was that 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 was even worse because loads of clinics were closed so then people had no way of accessing services loads of services weren't providing long-acting methods of contraception um, which some people want obviously so yeah, it was it's it it's just a bit of a nightmare. We're not making it easy for people. Obviously, right. unplanned pregnancy can be distressing for some people. It's particularly difficult for younger people that, you know, may be concealing the fact that they're using contraception or cannot declare that to their family or whatever, and it's putting people at risk, to be honest. Like it just <laughs> it just needs sorting out. Sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> Out. yeah so yeah we're definitely gonna link the report in the notes so people should definitely like have a read like the executive summary is probably like the easiest bit to read instead of going through the whole thing a lot of areas were pinpointed like the workforce so recruitment and retention issues within the nhs workforce reduced opportunities funding for lark training in primary care education information so the report was saying that the introduction of statutory relationship and uh, sex and sexual health will hopefully like increase the knowledge of people so people can understand what contraceptions are what methods are available so they're able to what I'm getting for that is that they're able to advocate more better for themselves and obviously you know funding lots of local authorities are facing significant cuts and they've translated that to section reproductive health and contraception care services so people should definitely take a look at the report it makes a bunch of recommendations which like lots of bodies have backed like the faculty for reproductive sexual health and stuff like that so the issue now is obviously it being implemented i think you picked up on a really good point that we also had lots of talks around sexual health week um because the theme was relationship and sex sex um education which has now become mandatory in schools and we're doing a lot of work to assist organizations that are delivering rse to make sure that that is as inclusive as possible around some of the subjects that we talk about because we know that Sometimes people and some schools are given just very generic sex education, which doesn't really fit their life experience. For example, within my my community, um, I'm of Nigerian descent. Sometimes, you know, you're told that you shouldn't be sexually active until slightly later, whether people like adhere to that advice or not. But it means that you're not going to have a a good conversation with your parents about sex, you know. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that we're told at school are quite redundant because I find that people in clinic come in in at uni or like they've left home early 20s. They're now sexually active because they're away from their parents Mm -hmm. and all that information that they received at school. To be honest, it wasn't fully absorbed and it wasn't fully understood because they weren't sexually active. So like the information doesn't really make sense. Like sex doesn't necessarily make sense to people if you've not had sex. And then they need a new sex ed and where do they get their sex ed if they're lucky they get mm. it from me um <laughs> all right okay. no, 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 i'm just joking <laughs> but like it basically what i mean is it's very reliant on an, if you come to a clinic or you go to a gp or whatever for contraception if you go for contraception whatever you go to the gp for and mm-hmm. then they might get a bit more information like at least you know people that require contraception go and have a talk if they do at that time but for people that don't require contraception they're not they're not even gonna have anywhere to go to have that additional chat it's just like what they're armed with at school and then they go on the internet and they do they do they do little google and they just like see rubbish on Beyonce's internet because that's that's what's found them well, they listen to their conco head friends anyway oh my gosh honestly i'm so i'm so so annoyed did you see that 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 tweet um what tweet? that tweet on the internet like about that that guy uh, who was like talking about how he like um during sex doesn't like to finger um finger women oh like, yeah the one you just shared you were like can we please not have sex with people who don't like <laughs> Wait, you think that's worse? There was another one, this guy talking about how he's he doesn't kiss the women he has sex with because he's saving it for his wife. I was like, 
Honestly, that's something that uh, I've heard a lot. Like, honestly, that 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 I've heard. That wait, I've heard a so lot. you will insert? Excuse me, friends. Your penis into a vagina or a penis into whatever receptacle, but you're telling me kissing is where you draw the bloody line. Honestly, love, like just I say know. you hate women and guy, please. <laughs> I'm honestly, tired. <laughs> I, honestly, I've just, I've just heard, I've just heard mad things. Like honestly, such, such, such mad things. But yeah, that one's really, really common. Like anyway, I line, and to be honest, I've heard that two way. Like, um, I'll sleep with somebody, but I won't kiss them. And I'm like, because kissing's intimate. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. So, um, but like, each their own. you have to do what you like. It's fine. But it's this, fine. This, I respect this video, boundaries. This video really annoyed me because it was just like yeah like I just don't I don't I don't like vaginas I don't like feeling them and like they're gross uh, uh, it's wetness and if, well they, then if they're stay wet, away if they're then sleeve, if they're wet then I wipe it on my sleeve and I was just like honestly uh, I just then stay away time. stay away from people with vaginas then just back up don't I'm come li- near them I'm literally just like why please don't sleep with people that don't like your body Whew. and this goes for everybody because I honestly think that you probably won't get the best sexually if somebody doesn't like your body. Like, mm. why they don't want to touch you. They just want to do what they want to do. And they're not really interested in your pleasure. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to have more conversations about pleasure later down the line on some yeah. of our other episodes. I know we've had a few already, but I just don't yeah. think it's talked about enough. Um, yeah. So 2020, don't have sex with people who don't like you. That's, that's what we're telling. I mean, like you is different. I mean, like your body is like your body. I mean, I think it's good if people like you, but like, yeah, no, that's people can dissociate these things and have very pleasurable um, sexual experiences. You're right. Um, You're right. I feel like, like your body, (laughs) or actually, very specific. I just feel. I don't know what they're doing there. If they, (laughs) it's true. So, um. That is a roundup of our news. And it was a bit of a bumper, bumper news sesh, basically, because we have so much to talk about because we've missed you and we loved you and we wanted to give you as much love and information as possible. So we have an amazing, amazing guest who will be joining us for our next segment to talk about queerness in the Caribbean, Dr. Carl. And he has been really amazing and supportive of decolonizing contraception and was on our UK Black Pride stand last year um, that we had with Prepster and was giving out lots of um, sexual health advice and lots of condoms that day. And he is a HIV and sexual health doctor in London and has loads of knowledge to share um not just in the world of sexual health but just more widely about queerness in the caribbean and what we should be doing within our communities so yes you're listening to the sex agenda Hello, people. Thank you for bringing me on. Hey. So great to have you on. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a bit more about what you do? And Annabelle's giving you a fabulous (laughs) introduction, but in your own way. In your own, also, I mean, you, if you, you can beat that, <laughs> or we can also, none of you can see Dr. Kyle, but yeah, a snack <laughs> is what some people oh, may, oh, 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 what oh. Might, what some may say. Um, we'll drop, growing, we'll drop their Instagram. <laughs> yeah, growing <laughs> um, dreads at the moment. Um, also, Annabelle yes, has been drinking, so we'll call that those beer goggles. Maybe. <laughs> oh, you are just outing me on this episode. I had a very small tipple, which we all, all had at the beginning of this podcast. Wait, 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 wait. Where's the evidence? Um, uh, uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yes, do tell us more. Do yeah, tell so, us more. Yes, yeah, so as you said, I'm a, I 
work in HIV and sexual health in London. And I'm originally from East London. My um, my family are originally from Trinidad in the West Indies, though I have family kind of spread all over the Caribbean. And some of my ancestors also from Barbados and Guyana. So I feel like I connect with most areas of the Caribbean in some way. And um, I guess in terms of interest... I've always been a little bit of an old man. So even from my my young days, I was that annoying little child that was always bothering old people and being like, tell me about this and tell me about that. And I've always been interested in Caribbean history, my own family history. And I think those are my kind of, <clears throat> that kind of comes out of my general interests and passions, I guess. So I have a blog where I write about Caribbean history and my own family history. And then I'm also quite interested, I guess, in in understanding colonization and how it affects us now and then also kind of trying to get back to our pre-colonial cultures and understanding ourselves a bit better so kind of unpicking how colonization has affected us today so I have another another um Instagram page called inheritance which is very much more specifically about hair within communities of people of color and I guess we all have a really shared experience in terms of colonialization causing an erasure of our culture. And it's about trying to kind of bring, kind of reclaim what we had before, celebrate the diversity and our creativity and rethink about how we fit into society now. So I think that kind of affects all areas of my work. So whether that's kind of how I try to approach medicine, which I know we all kind of share, um, but as well as thinking about kind of our feelings towards ourselves and kind of accepting ourselves in society now. A, a polymath, <laughs> a multifaceted, amazing being. And yeah, the Inheritance Instagram page is incredible. So definitely we'll link these and drop all these links in our references and definitely go and check those out so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more initially actually about your journey into sexual health Mm. medicine and maybe why why you wanted to do Mm. that work that's really interesting actually I, I mean when I first I never really knew what I wanted to do in medicine and I used to do you know, at medical school, I do one placement here and I think, oh, I want to do this. I really enjoy this or that. And it wasn't really until I started working and I was actually doing a urology job. So it was like a surgical job um, dealing with kidneys and organs down below. And we would often deal with young men with infections of their testicles. And I used to work with these doctors who were so scared of just even mentioning the word sex let alone talking about kind of STIs and risk reduction and using condoms. And they would literally throw antibiotics at someone without even explaining what they were for. And um, when I looked at that, I thought, why aren't they doing this? We were taught we were supposed to do this at medical school. And so I realised, you know what, I feel comfortable talking about this with people. I think most people that go into the specialty that we do is because we're kind of passionate about the element of education that comes along with sexual health. So it's kind of, we're like, yes, we don't cringe at at using words like sex or vagina or penis or whatever else we use. And we think it's really important that we empower people to understand their bodies and understand how they can be sexually healthy in all ways. So I think that's kind of, that was initially what got me really, really interested. And then I th- you know, it was when I kind of got into the specialty and started reading more and more around it. I am so interested by these statistics. And I know we were talking about the recent PHE statistics. And so especially coming from a Caribbean background and knowing that it's one of the worst affected communities in the UK in terms of gonorrhea and chlamydia rates. That's something that has not changed since it was first kind of picked up in, I think, like the 60s. It's the same. You know, we, it's constantly every year, as Annabelle was saying, we know that they're the worst hit community and let, yet we're sitting here being like well what's changed what's been put into place to help with this and there's really limited research in the area as well which really surprises me considering we know this is one of the worst hit groups I've like looked into it myself and you know there's some there is some research but it definitely doesn't bring us to a point where we have the tools to try to help change this so yeah a whole thing that I'm passionate about I guess is trying to look into that a little bit more and I think it's something that I would hope to look into in the future with my research but I'm actually starting a master's very soon um, at SOAS and post-colonial studies and I think I'm going to try to mix it towards you know or or think about sexual health and sexual health inequalities and how colonialization has affected that. I think a big part of you know my feeling with 
I guess moving into you know Caribbean views on sexuality and on gender but it's for me it's about finally leaving the plantation and I feel like so much of what colors everything Ooh, that we come on, <laughs> yeah it's, it's you know so much of what colors society in the Caribbean and now in the diaspora is this is what happened on the plantation so it's these ideas of hyper masculinity and what that means in terms of sexuality you know having those things taken away from you family structures concurrent relationships as they call it in the literature christianity, christianity. Oh Incredible, and I can't wait to see what comes out of your mm-hmm. masters because I know it will be fantastic. Um, something I think I forgot to kind of pick up on earlier is because a lot of people think, oh, you know, you guys talk about STIs and affected communities. Surely we have bigger fish to fry, and why are STIs important? But I think I forgot to say that you know a lot of STIs do cause other things like chronic pelvic mm-hmm. pain. They cause infertility mm-hmm. issues. Um, actually, very severe ones can lead to surgery, like removal of like ovaries and things like that. So it can be like far more complicated than people kind of immediately realize and then there's the psychological Mm -hmm. impact of having sexually transmitted infections um which people really hugely underestimate yeah it also like impacts your ability to like live your life right like just freely and be yourself right you know do you know me like it really does have an effect and obviously the stigma as well plays a really huge role the way that people perceive SDI so even if you have had them and you have been treated you know being able to openly have the conversation with people around you about you know what they should be doing to prevent it and the fact that it's like an issue they should take seriously all of those things also factor into the way that people perceive it. Even only today at work, I had a patient talk to me about like this idea of clean and said, oh, but he said he was clean, you know, and and then he said, I asked if he was clean and he said, yeah, but kind of laughed. And I said, well, maybe he was laughing at your use of this word. You know, I was like, it's really not the word to use. What makes something clean or dirty, you know? Well, like I had a shower. I had a shower today. That's what you're asking me. I definitely did. It's definitely a term that comes up a lot and I think um definitely in terms of sex ed needs to be unpacked Mm. so just going back to your end point um in terms of what you wish to explore in in your masters and how sexuality and gender have been constructed Mm. kind of post um, colonialism and how um they were constructed differently I know we've touched with this a bit with um Gayathri around Tamil communities and Hinduism and I just wanted to get your perspective from yeah Caribbean culture and and being Mm. in it and what what your experience yeah I think it's it's a really interesting thing that I'm you know I'm only really starting to learn more and think about more now but I think within Caribbean society this idea of who a man is and what a man must do is really really important and I actually I was only recently reading a book which someone at work lent me which is it's Mr. Lover Man by Bernardine Evaristo. And it was a book I'd never heard of. And I could not believe it was even there and available. Because again, another view I have is that there's just no queer visibility within the Caribbean. If you Google gay and Caribbean, the only thing you will find is information about kind of homophobic killings or, you know, people having to hide. There's nothing positive out there. There's a really interesting book, but I was reading one of these discussions and it was like so it's this man but I mean the premise of the story is this man is married to he's from Antigua he's married to a lady but he's having an affair with his best friend who's a man and he's sitting and he's listening to his wife have a conversation with a few of her female friends who are all from the Caribbean as well and then they start talking about gay men and the, it's which is so interesting the word they used for it was anti-man which I was like, it's not something I've heard personally, but I thought it was so interesting that the fact that gayness suddenly has to equal anti-masculinity. And I think that hits at the root of homophobia in the Caribbean is this idea that you're chipping away at something that's probably already a bit fragile. And I think, and, and you know, personally, I believe that's because of plantation society in which you know, enslaved men were were used for their sexual prowess, were used to create more slaves. You know, they were called the buck and they would procreate and that was their use. And at the same time, they weren't able to create firm structures. And when you have something that's not very stable and then you feel like, you know, this thing comes along and is chipping away at that, I think that's just, you know, I think that's the, the root of the issue. 
So I think that's so interesting because I was just randomly watching a video from a historian who I think is at the University of Exeter um, about some of the less discussed cultural fallouts of, of colonialism. One of the things that they picked up on was how because of the demasculinization of men by colonial mm -hmm. forces some of them would go home and subject their wives to more domestic mm -hmm. abuse and violence and that's something that has been has been documented and this idea you know being stripped of your humanity in one area creates kind of this huge social change in another sphere which we often don't necessarily attribute to these other things that were were mm -hmm. going on and that's you know that's very true even in the post-slavery period so after slavery was abolished within the british islands anyway actually in the french islands there were um new laborers brought in who were from india and china and there was a massive issue mm -hmm. with violence against women because the women were really really scarce and so actually there were these really brutal murders of women you know and um so that that's a domestic violence that's kind of come down as almost like a normal part of the society in some ways as well. But then interestingly, in a different way, it also liberated these women sexually because they actually felt like they were in a position of power where they weren't before, where because they were scarce, they felt like they were able to pick between people. And again, because... Their, you know, their own religious marriages weren't necessarily recognised either. It wasn't like they felt like they had to stay with one person. So then we talk about this idea of concurrency and concurrent relationships, relationships now in in the Caribbean and and in you know diaspora societies now. I think it all is related to this and this whole. It's all all from the plantation, Charles. Should we call that the episode <laughs> all from the plantation? <laughs> And I think it's a really difficult one because when you start having these conversations and we know that, you know, people were like, oh, you want to link everything back mm, to slavery? Mm. Like, it was so long ago. Um, da, 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 da. And, and, and just like, why do you keep coming back here? And I'm like, well, we haven't really reckoned with a lot of this mm -hmm. material in any real way. A lot of people don't understand how long the, not just the transatlantic slave trade, but then, you know, the period of British colonialism mm -hmm lasted mm -hmm. for hundreds of years yeah. and has fundamentally altered yet yeah, a lot of things so I just wanted to take it back to you discussing this role of like masculinity and then you know people performing mm -hmm. sometimes hyper masculinity to, to fit this this viewpoint and how it is to navigate navigate that yeah. space I think it's like it's a very much it's very much expected that men, even from a young age, are sexually aggressive. Like, it's normal and it's expected. And it's like, of course, you know, we, we almost encourage it in children, you know, like, that that they should be aggressive towards women and be looking at women and thinking about women. And that's normal and that's healthy. And it's when you're not doing that, then you will be labelled as, oh, you're sensitive or you're quiet or you're this or you're that. And suddenly you're just not manly enough or you don't fit into the idea of what a Caribbean man is. And, you know, I always think about my grandfather to me was the epitome of the, that Caribbean man. He never got married his whole life. He never was pinned down by any woman. He was he was that man that was flirting with everyone. And, you know, he, he passed away in his 70s. But up until he died, like I, I recall, you know, one of my last times visiting him in Trinidad and there was a young female. So I was probably in my early 20s or yeah, around that age. And, um, you know, she was my age and he was flirting with her so openly and it was normal. And she laughed and almost was blushing like this was fine. And I was thinking <laughs> this man is my grandfather. And it's just, you know. You're watching I your grandfather slide you. into a literal DM. This is what's so funny is it's, you know, it's this masculinity, this this flirtation, this this overt sexuality is celebrated, but only when it is in this heteronormative way. And that's what it comes down to. Mm. So if you so I mean my own experiences of coming out as um you know as bisexual was actually that people the, the feeling amongst people is that it, it's unchristian. So God did not sanction, you know, mm. any sexuality that deviates uh, between from a man and a woman. And those were the arguments I had to unfortunately have with various members of my family. And then beyond that, there's this feeling that, 
you know, gay people, anyone within their LGBTQ umbrella is shoving their sexuality in your face, which I find so interesting when you reflect on Caribbean society and you watch, you you know, all you have to do is watch, not to say that carnival is is always overtly sexual and the roots of it certainly aren't, but, you know, you look at carnival Mm -hmm. and you look at these girls and they're pretty mass and they're hardly wearing anything. You know, and that's fine. That's accepted. You look at the forms of dancing, which again, the origins aren't always completely sexual, but it's very right. sexualized now and it's out and it's done on the streets. You know, you have to just look at a Paso Paso video and you get the idea that it's mm-hmm. not that people are shy about ex- expressing their sexuality, but only when it's heteronormative. And I think that's what the issue is. And I think that's rooted in an insecure masculinity but that's you know my own view so far maybe I'll reflect on it more and learn more but that's that's my conclusion I mean I think it's definitely an important and interesting conversation um, to be had especially I guess discussing what we uh, mentioned prior Mm. and the studies that have you know very limited and I have to say really poor kind of qualitative data which is like interviewing and discussing with communities essentially around some of these statistics but the things that have been done and there's been bits by like Professor Kevin Fenton who's like a really great public health doctor about some of the 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 needs of black and specifically black Caribbean communities in sexual health have shown that black cis men are more likely to have several concurrent partners Mm. And that's often used as like the justification for some of the statistics um, and things that that we see and how much of that is like governed by the structures that you've discussed and people wanting to perform Mm -hmm. masculinity or, uh, you know, some of it, obviously, some people just want pleasure and, you know, structurally want lots of partners, but also not be monogamous because of these other things. Yeah, there's a lot a lot to unpack there which I'm sure we will in future episodes I'm not sure if you want to say any more about that specifically um you know I I think I agree with you it's this idea that there's a justification made so it's like well this community are just they just have these concurrent you know it's basically saying they're really promiscuous and this is why it's happening Mm. tick done justification and we're not going to do anything more about it but it's actually like say about one not only understanding the the ideas or, or kind of how the community has arrived at this place, but also looking at specific ways of trying to tackle that. Just because, you know, mm. sexual relationships with multiple partners is not in itself a negative thing. So it's about how we look at helping right. this group of people who are doing this be sexually healthy, have the knowledge that they need to have to make sure that they're using precautions. You know, and it's looking at contraception, which, you know, tying into this campaign this campaign, it's so important that girls or all not just girls but all people realize that contraception is really important because unwanted pregnancies are certainly not the way forward but then also think about sti risk as part of that and i think if people can find those ways of of managing that better then these concurrent relationships don't necessarily have to always be an issue yeah and i think also on that front really interestingly i think there's always this the the research never really accounts for and this has got to do with like this bad breakdown of data and like what we're collecting and what we're not understanding mm. um doesn't really account for the fact that there are migrant mm-hmm. populations in the the cohort of people that we're looking at and invariably you know black caribbean and also black african communities their partners are more likely to also come from yeah. abroad or they might have a partner that yeah. is from abroad or even if they don't their partners as a partner might be from abroad where the prevalence of disease is are completely mm-hmm. different because they don't have the health system mm-hmm. that we have so like how much of this is actually just due to people having sex within a pool of people that have more stis mm-hmm. because <laughs> they have partners that are from different yeah. places and things like that rather than their actual sexual behaviors and i think it's absolutely right that Again, some of the, the the racial prejudice that plays into, oh, there's a lot of STIs in mm-hmm. this community. So it has to be because of hypersexuality yeah. and lots and lots of sex rather than like the wider structural issues about like how and who people are just having yeah. sex with. And it's, you know it's I, so true because I mean, 
maybe this is slightly more anecdotal and I'd need to look into the statistics, but I don't know if you'd agree, Annabelle, but within the heterosexual population uh, or with heterosexual transmission of syphilis, for example, the highest numbers would be from Eastern Europe. And that, again, is because of higher disease burden outside of Western Europe. And it's just this, but then I don't know if those statistics are necessarily pulled out in the same way as like this idea of BAME and non-BAME or white, basically. So I don't think these things... Well, it's not because this is another issue that is within the statistics and it's not even helpful for some white Mm -hmm. communities. And I've pointed this out that white is presented as a homogenous group within Mm -hmm. the data, despite like the, the wide you know differences between some white communities within the UK and them not having the same you know disease you know risk and things Mm. like that so it's definitely not pulled out in the same way and it's definitely under discussed Mm. like the 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 poor outcomes for health generally around amongst like Roma communities Mm. and that kind of thing like doesn't really get a looking um either so loads to say there um so we've got so much to discuss and i'm like oh might have to bring you back for a, a, a cheeky part two but yeah do you have um going back to some of the discussion about i guess how things were constructed prior to colonialism and i'm sure you'll have much more to say about this over the next mm. year or so but like are there key things that you've learned and you've read about that you're like oh you know we can learn from this or we should talk about mm, this more. Definitely. And I think our whole, you know, our whole thing is decolonization. And I think that's, it's something for each former colonial nation to have to think about on how they go through that. And that's something that Caribbean nations are still doing, you know, with, I, I don't know if people have seen the news, but Barbados has finally decided to get rid of the queen as their, you know, as their head. Big up! About time. About, about time. time. <laughs> and these, you know, so it's all Bye. a process and people are slowly starting to kind of look back and think, okay, so who are we and redefine themselves. And I think, but I, I don't think it's always necessarily done in the right way. And so what I think is happening in the Caribbean is you have this feeling of, okay, we need to redefine who we are without really recognizing the effects of colonialism on them now. So in terms of, you know, these laws that are in place that are saying, you know, um, these anti-buggery laws or whatever you want to call them, in place and that's related to colonization. People feel like homosexuality or, you know, anything like that is a Western import and it's seen as a white thing and it's seen as we shouldn't let that pollute our society now. And, you know, within Barbados at the moment, there are there are these talks that have been going on for a while about whether they're going to have a referendum to discuss same-sex marriage. But within that, if you look at all of the rhetoric from, you know, well-educated MPs, the feeling is still that these things may happen in Europe and these things may happen in America, but this doesn't necessarily happen in Barbados. Wow, must be different air they're breathing in Europe and America. Exactly, this is the thing, you know, and it's it's really actually until they can deconstruct the idea, you know, understand where that comes from, and actually realize that pre-colonization within many areas of Africa, within many areas of Asia, within the indigenous communities that were present in the Caribbean and South America before, actually ideas around homosexuality and gender fluidity were much, much more accepted. And, you know, even if you were, I'm really especially interested in in kind of voodoo and Orisha, which are these kind of, so they're African-based religions that are kind of that were they're kind of syncretic in that they bring in elements of christianity sometimes elements of other religions as well but the basis of them came from from africa and from slavery so they have these deities or spirits but they're called either you have loas or the or orisha they in themselves are quite gender fluid they in themselves can be bisexual you know though Mm -hmm. that's not a fixed thing and that's something that was an innate normal part of society if it could be reflected in your gods in the people that you're worshiping how is it why is it something that we should you know separate from our society and say that that's nothing to do with us and it's the same within hinduism which is very much practiced in trinidad and in guyana if you look at kind of ancient temples and you look at 
at different you know there are mm-hmm. these tantric temples that literally have people of all genders and types having sex with each other you know if you look at this idea of male and female which in some ways can be binary they combine in many ways as well and you know people can have different aspects of both um and then within indigenous communities, there are actually communities that still exist in, in Venezuela and in Guyana that were previously in existence in the Caribbean, where their genders were a completely normal part of society. And actually those, so there's like a tribe called Warao, and actually the Warao tribe, which is still present in Venezuela, has crazily high HIV rates, um, and they don't really have access to antiretrovirals at the moment. So that's an ongoing issue due to the fact that male sex is is a very normal thing sex between two men is a very normal thing in that society and if it's something that exists now it means it existed before you know so right, um i right. think it's about unpicking all of just, these things um i just wanted to bring in something that you said earlier just about um mm. barbados and the, the 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 removing the head head mm-hmm. of state there i'm not sure if you or edem saw the article about the bbc journalist asking the prime minister right whether homosexuality should be allowed in barbados um obviously journalists is quite ignorant about the anti-buggery laws being introduced mm. by the british and how you know sexuality was constructed there prior but um her her answer will link in the references was quite phenomenal and she said first of all she asked if that question would be asked um to the the president of the the u.s or the or the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And then she said, we are absolutely clear that Barbados became the first black slave society and a country that has known what it is to discriminate against its citizens Mm -hmm. for centuries cannot in today's world be discriminating against any human being for any reason whatsoever. And I think it's just such a powerful uh, statement in just like also highlighting really that people think that a lot of these issues are very Mm -hmm. far away because they've decided that they're far away and they should bury them. But actually, for a lot of societies, the Queen obviously was still their head of state, literally until, you know, a few few days ago this was announced. This is really, really fresh. Like, it's not yeah. over. People do not feel they have autonomy. And people also still reel it. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And, you know, you were saying people like to talk about slavery was such a long time ago and does it really have an effect now? And it's like she said, Barbados from its inception from, you know, 16, I think it was discovered in 1620 roughly. And, you know, within 20 years, they were importing African slaves and the whole society was built up around this. And literally, when you look at maps of every single island, you know, the whole island, you know, all the islands in the Caribbean, sorry. If you look at the the geography is based around that, people's lives are based around that, how people still live, the words they're using, you know, all of that is based around that. To say that that doesn't have an effect today is just ignorant, really. When I was back in Ghana and part of like being at school is that like you learn a foreign language and I was just French, I was in French club. And I remember having to learn, you know, like the French language has very gendered terms, you know, a table is a he and that's a she and all of that. And it, it just made me reflect on my local language, which is um the Ewe, um, I call them tribe nation of which um voodoo fong is a religion of ours as well where we don't have male and female names for things like our things aren't gendered and you know it took me to grow up to realize like europe and you know gender as we know today which is a social construct again it's another importation from the colonial period that we've had this European nations, like a lot of the way that we think about masculinity and femininity and the way that our society is like ordered in terms of gender, again, are all importations. Going back to what you were saying about, you know, gender. And I think that's another thing, you know, in this country, people, when we come to this idea of, of what gender means and really it's a very personal thing. So, you know, you have your own feelings and that. And it shouldn't really need to affect anyone else. And the reason why it does, and I think one of these big things people have issues with is pronouns, because people say, well, what do I call them? Or, you know, he or she, whatever it comes down to, they get confused by that. And they don't like that because they're worried they're going to make a mistake. But that's the English language. And that's Western languages, you know, but like you say, there are many West African languages, there are Asian languages where that doesn't even factor in. There's no difference in your aunt or your uncle. Sometimes actually age is more important or respectability. And there are other factors that make it that you know that are more important when you're referring to someone but because it's such an innate part of the English language we think oh well it must be an innate thing within the universe you know and it's just not 
and that those are the like say those are the things we really need to learn more about and then unlearn within our, our colonial history and i think that's so that's so um yeah that's so great because i think it's something that has tied into a lot of conversations that we've had previously but um just not just with language i think society's undergoing a bit of a reckoning within western society definitely about the trans community and like people feeling that the trans community are invading their spaces or feeling like you know they're trying to take from you know cis spaces and people not even wanting to say that they're cis and I guess that also feeds into that discussion where actually in some societies there was never this issue to begin with because you had yeah. what was similar to a trans community and they just had their own space. They had yeah. their own names, they had their own space mm-hmm. and all of us existed in this harmony <laughs> or or what, you know, what intent, I'm sure there was not always harmony within those societies, but in terms of they, they there wasn't this, this push and tug because there wasn't just like these, these two genders. Um, historically and this is a battle that we're facing within our specific context now um, within western societies because that's how they've been structured but not Mm -hmm. every society was structured that way so people wouldn't feel encroached upon in the way that people are feeling now and I think this is just such a difficult thing for people to get their heads around I think in the spaces that we work in that people are at least starting to try and have some of these conversations and willing to have these conversations because it's so pertinent to our work but I know for the everyman on this on the street when you start saying to them you know well trans communities have always existed in in different societies that were colonized and they had names and we don't have pronouns people were just like that's not relevant to me i don't want to know know this <laughs> you know? Yeah. and i'm like but but it's weird that we're in this time where i feel like people are less willing to change maybe that's just me right but like societies have shaped and shifted Hmm. always like you know we've learned and we've borrowed and we've understood and I think in this instance actually what we should be learning and willing to do is actually learn from countries that we thought and societies that we thought were quote-unquote primitive right (laughs) we should actually go and do some learning from them because I actually think they had it right to begin with (laughs) You're very right. And I mean, it's like that same kind of Western lurch towards Eastern spirituality, you know, like that's something that happens. But maybe it's not- <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like they pick and choose. Everyone got stress-based that, that in their life and decided to do some yoga. Mm. <laughs> do some namaste. If, 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 if I, if I, anyway, <laughs> any, anyway, yeah. So we have talked and we have chatted um, and I think we have just so much. (laughs) We've really had such an extensive discussion, but it's been amazing speaking to you, Kyle. And yeah, I think we've learned so much. We've got so many reflections and I really hope that, you know, we can speak again later down the line. Um, Are there any last things you want to say to our listeners? Put in references. You know what, one thing I would say, we spoke about Vibadis a little bit, but it's just to say that Trinidad did... um, you know have been six well not Trinidad hasn't but there was a specific person called Jason Jones someone who I count as a friend of mine now who um actually took the Trinidad High Court to to not Trinidad the Trinidad government the government for impinging on his human rights as a gay man and won um so the first Caribbean island to kind of overturn the the homophobic laws that are in place um and it would just be to have a look out for his people's foundation so it's called the jason jones people foundation you can follow them on instagram or look online um and he's got big things coming in the future so it's just someone to keep an eye on amazing thank you so much and we'll definitely check that out and put links to your social media on the website so thank Thank you you so much for for speaking to us
have reached the growth section of um, this episode and the growth section is basically going to be us bigging up ourselves again, again, for winning Grassroots Organization of the Year, the Sexual Health Awards. But it's mainly to reflect on DC as an organization. I think October is going to mark two years. I, I remember when Annabelle emailed me and was like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to do? I was like, yeah, it doesn't seem like I have enough going on. So yeah, sure, let's do this. Let's jump on this. And we got together and our first event was at um, SOAS. And I t- honestly, I don't know if I've told the story before, but you, you remember like I rocked up and I was like, hi, I haven't slept in like 24 hours because I was doing this other thing and I went to work and then I'm here now. You're like, are you OK? And I'm like, yeah, I'm totally fine. Let's do this. And we did. And it was great. And we did more talks. We went to Leicester. We've been to all sorts of places. And, you know, in the last three to four to five months, we've been doing lots of things online. I've now, you know, had the pleasure of the last two months, like doing a lot of stuff for DC. And it's been absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's not just the two of us. There's Gayathri, there's Sujita, there's the whole collective, people behind us just doing amazing work. And I just wanted to big up Annabelle because really she is the one that brought us together. She was like, hey guys, do you want to do this thing? Do you want to come together? And it really changed things for a lot of us because we were in our individual institution organization fighting, you know, doing all the things that we talk about now, but we were doing it on our own. And it's really incredible, you know, just shows the power of bringing people together. We came together and create some shockwaves in, in the sector you know people are like what's this and you know I remember Annabelle Tennant's like oh yeah so I think people won't fund us because there's decolonizing our name and they're a bit scared we're like well we're not changing it it's staying it's staying it is what it is if you don't like it then keep it moving and I really hope the next year we can continue to like be around and do the work that we do because it's it's so much it's so important. Like, I think we need to be around to really hold the sector, the government, the people in power to account and and to bring our community's voices to the table in a way that, you know, hasn't been done for a very long time. Yeah, that's the that's the growth section. I, I'm incredibly of all the things that have happened in the last couple of years. This is one of the things I'm incredibly proud of being a part of, honestly. And yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Annabelle. Love you, babe. <laughs> that was like so nice. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. And um, it's been a real learning curve for me. And um, yeah, at times it's felt like, oh, is this is this gonna work? And even now, you know, I when you're managing something, you're like, how can I be sustainable? How can I do the work for my community, um, but also make sure that we can keep going and make sure people within the collective don't get burnt out because that was also a really important function of decolonizing contraception to bring us together but also make sure that the good work work that people are doing they feel like they don't get burnt out and really the only thing I want to add to what Edem said really is that one of the beautiful things about a collective is and you know that your work is working is when you bring people together and they create their own ideas or their own movements, or they feel empowered to go and do more work because of what they've seen going on. And I think that's one of the most inspirational things for me, that even if DC couldn't continue like forevermore, there's been so much great work that's come out. And also, I know that there's going to be things in the next couple of years that people are working on and they're collaborating on and that they're doing as a result of building these connections and being part of the collective that are going to make waves within themselves, you know? And whether people directly know that's because of DC or whatever is not really relevant. It's that the fact that that's brilliant work for the things that we're trying to address. So yeah, it's um, it's really lovely to feel that again, again, I mean, it's so, look, let's be honest. How Pull up. Yeah, I'm just going to do it again. One more time. One more time. Yeah. I think it, it adds to the flavour of, of this episode, doesn't it? Like, it's on the money. So, yeah, I mean. Thank you, guys. Thank you. See you in the Bye. next one. Bye. <laughs>